Welcome to Dunzo. This is a podcast that explores hookups and breakups of famous lovers and friends, both real and fake, in all the discarded pop culture of yesteryear. I'm your host, Troy McKeady. You guys, welcome to episode 142 of Dunzo. It's me, Troy McKeady. This feels so weird because I haven't uh, I haven't recorded by myself in a long time. So to be honest with you, I've had to stop and restart a few times. And by a few, I mean 30. <laughs> I'm just, first of all, hi. I missed you. How are you? I'm really, really, really excited to take like this moment and however long this... Uh, this series that we're starting today takes to just like reconnect and hang out and, you know, just talk, just us girls, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just us girls kicking our wedges at a coffee table. Um, I, first of all, just want to thank you guys for being, I mean, the DMs and the messages and just the emails and shit that I've been getting for the past couple of days have been amazing. You guys are like, just it's just so wild that you guys have been on this journey with me since the beginning and that we've like been acquainted now for so long you know it's been three years that some of you have been listening to me fucking gab into this microphone and I can't uh I can't express how much I appreciate that and you know this is a really weird time to be alive this is a really 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 strange scary, confusing, gross time to be a person living in the world. But it's also, you know, after having a few days to kind of like come to terms with what's happening right now in the fucking world, it's also weirdly kind of exciting the fact that change is happening and now it's out of our hands, you know? We can't go back. We can't go back to how things were a couple weeks ago. And even then, like, we had a, a fucking pandemic ravage our entire world. So, you know, we're just, it, we're just, like, along for the fucking ride with the devil at this point. I don't know. Satan himself just has us in the back of a fucking pickup, and he is riding, like, a bat out of hell. Literally. We're just along for the ride. We're just figuring out what's happening and where we end up, and who knows. You know what I mean? Um, but I just wanted to start off the podcast by saying that I appreciate you in ways that I, uh, I don't really know how to express because I'm an Aries, so it's hard for me, but I really, really, really do. Um, I have people, I have people that are really close to me, people that mean a lot to me in my life, people that I've known my entire life, people that, uh, have really you know, grown up with me who don't support me as much as a lot of you guys do. And and I don't know you, you know what I mean? I don't know a lot of you personally, but you support me in a way that people in my actual life don't. And that's just true tea. And that was, uh, that became very eerily apparent, uh, the past couple days. It's always been apparent, but you know, when, uh, when crazy shit happens, you really find out who cares about you and who like, thinks about you, you know, and I just, I don't know, I'm gonna stop being weird, I, I don't know, I just, uh, 
I don't know. I'm apologizing in advance again for my weird behavior this episode. I am just, I, I, I can't make words anymore. You know what I mean? I feel like I've lost my ability to articulate words and thoughts and feelings. I don't possess it anymore. So I'm going to do my best. Um, I am super, super, super excited for this because I know that you guys will be into it. I love when I do an episode that I know will be a big deal for people and that will be a milestone for me and for this podcast and for us together. Uh, I I have so many thoughts and emotions and things that I want to say, and I'm so excited to finally be able to say them. Um, now I can like spare Russ Martin <laughs> a few messages a day because I feel like I'm always, I feel like I'm always spouting off unsolicited, uh, thoughts about pop stars to Russ Martin throughout the day. That's just like, it's like obvious that I need to put it somewhere productive, you know? <laughs> and this feels very productive. This feels like something I've wanted to do for a very long time, but was afraid to touch. And then a few weeks ago, I decided it's a, it's finally time. We're devoting the next, I, to be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not giving it a number anymore. I think that that's just I'm no longer giving the episodes a number. I don't know how fucking long this will take. But we are devoting probably at least a few weeks to Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown. Not only Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown, but Whitney Houston, Bobby Brown, and Robin Crawford. Whitney's uh, best friend slash life partner. Um, And I'm really excited about it. I'm really, really, really excited to finally give Whitney Houston what she's always deserved on this podcast and to express to you guys what she means to me and how much I love her. And, uh, I don't know, hopefully shed a different perspective on what people know of her and what they think they know of her and what I think I know of her. I've already learned so much about her and doing the amount of research that I've already done. I have so much more stuff to do because there's so much to cover in Whitney Houston's life but uh, I don't know. We're like six minutes and I haven't said anything. Do you, do you get what I'm saying now? I've lost my ability to talk. So this may be a four hour episode of me just rambling. I don't fucking know, but we're going to get into it. Also, by the way, before I get started, I turned my air conditioner off to record this and it is easily 89 degrees in my fucking apartment. And I'm surrounded by cottons and things to muffle the sound of this fucking building, which is all wood and brick. So If I end up getting a little irritable while we talk about Sissy Houston, I apologize in advance. (laughs) Um, And as previously mentioned, this is a, this is going to be kind of a three person series. I haven't done this since Denise, Heather, and Richie. I really don't think I've done anything like this since then. And I'm presenting it as a three person series because Whitney Houston was deeply uh, committed to two different people for a very large portion of her life. Both Robin and Bobby Brown were very aware of the fact that they shared Whitney. And, you know, as much as they hated each other, they also had to kind of coexist because she loved them both. Um, and it's like the perfect representation of being pulled by like the, the devil and the angel on your shoulder, like literally good and evil. You know what I mean? And the devil is like hip thrusting and sweating on your left shoulder with a perm. It's like, stay away. You know what I mean? Um, But yeah, Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown met in 1989 at the Soul Train Music Awards. They 
dated for three years and got engaged in September of 1991. They were married in July of 92 and they separated in 2006. I think it was in, I want to say September of 2006 and their divorce became finalized in spring of 2007. I'm also just going to start by saying, and I feel like I should give this disclaimer before the podcast even starts for every episode, but very specifically in this one, I know that I will find ways to literally compare any celebrity to Britney Spears. It is like the drinking game that I know you guys play behind my back and it actually doesn't even hurt me. I'm proud of you for coming up with it. I know that you're doing it, but the similarities between Whitney Houston and Britney Spears are at times, almost kind of eerie and creepy. It's like they make me uncomfortable at times because their lives are so similar. And when it comes to, you know, their careers, their public personas, how they were introduced to the world, their rise and fall, the fact that they both allowed these just fully ain't shit insecure men to come in and dismantle everything they had worked for literally their whole lives um you know and and having previously said ain't shit man just totally changed the public's opinion of them in a way that they never were fully able to recover from I always say that Whitney Houston's life is what Britney's would have been had she not been forced to get sober like I think the par the parallels would have just continued on And, uh, you know, I just, I don't think I've talked enough on this podcast about my deep infatuation and love of Whitney Houston. I've consistently throughout the years of my life been in awe of her. I've been confused by her. I've laughed at her. I've laughed with her. I just feel like Well, this isn't really a thing that I feel. It is a fact. I don't know my life without Whitney Houston being in it. You know what I mean? She kind of took off the year I was born. So since I was a baby, I've only ever really known Whitney Houston being a really prominent part of my life. And I just, I, I love her. But she's also one of those celebrities that I feel like, you know, in the past maybe 10 years, I've had to really grapple with how I treated her. Not only how the world treated her, but like me specifically, because I was somebody who did laugh at Whitney Houston during the lowest points of her life. You know what I mean? And she's somebody who, during a time when the media wasn't kind to her and was making fun of her, and, you know, when she was sort of falling victim to the pressures that we as a society put on her, a time when we should have, tried to help this woman who was a a living treasure. Instead, we made fun of her addiction. We made fun of her weight. We made fun of her body. We made fun of her relationships. We called her a crackhead. We, I mean, it just, we made fun of her mental health issues. We elephant manned her to death, basically. And it's just like, it's so crazy when you go back and watch old videos of Whitney Houston when she's young and it's like, wow, like we really lost somebody who, even though she's Whitney Houston and will always be known as one of the greatest of all time, even that isn't enough. You know what I mean? Just being known as the super talented person 
and that sort of being how your uh, how your story is written when you die. She was talented. There's so much more to Whitney Houston's life. There's so many intricate details to Whitney Houston's life that are just like not talked about enough. Whitney Houston was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey in the 60s, very ironically during the height of the Newark riots, the race riots that took place in, you know, the 60s, uh, that swept the nation and left 26 people dead in 1967. Whitney's dad was in the army, and Whitney's mother, Sissy Houston, was, of course, a gospel singer. Whitney is the cousin of Dionne Warwick, and her honorary aunt is Aretha Franklin. Her godmother is Darlene Love. And Whitney Houston is the baby of her family, which actually kind of... Whitney Houston very much plays the role of the baby in her family for her entire life. You know? Like, she's very much the baby, and that's, like, her thing. Um, you know, she was surrounded by her brothers and her uncles and her dad. She was basically the girl growing up that you just kind of knew not to fuck with in any way, shape, or form because you'd have a group of very protective, angry men after you. And from what I've read, Whitney was always, you know, super close to her father, sort of emotionally. Her dad was the one that coddled her and nurtured her, whereas her mother was the stern one. She was the one that you really didn't want to fuck with. And a lot of my notes are based on Whitney's documentary that came out, I want to say last year, maybe the year the year before, um, Can I Be Me, which is so good. If you haven't seen it, it's on Showtime. I think it's on Amazon Prime, I want to say. It's amazing. And, you know, they explored her relationship with her mom in a way that, if you are a Whitney Houston fan, has always been sort of speculated Like, I grew up hearing the adults around me talk about how jealous Sissy Houston always was of her daughter. Like, that was always just a thing. Not really being able to understand what all of that meant as a child. But now it's like, I really, really get it, you know? She taught her to sing. She was responsible for, like, helping, you know, kind of guide her. She taught Whitney how to use her voice in a way that was, like, not just a girl who could sing. She wasn't just a girl who could hit notes. She taught Whitney how to sing from, like, her heart. You know what I mean? Whitney Houston could literally sing fucking Happy Birthday, and you would end up crying. She really taught her daughter how to find her own voice. And, you know, she guided her career. It was very, it's very uh, bloated Matthew Knowles, if you will. And she devoted herself to making sure that her daughter became this big star that she never was. It's like classic fucking pageant mom bullshit. And Sissy Houston Houston is undoubtedly, of course, respected in the music industry. She's fucking Sissy Houston. But Sissy never had that solo fame that her daughter had. You know, she never had, you know, lots of big giant charting singles on the radio. She never was able to, like, tour the world alone as a, as, a, as a solo artist, you know? She was always in girl groups or singing backup for people or, you know, helping other people kind of develop their sound and develop their vocals. She was never, she was always the bridesmaid. And I think that Sissy Houston struggled with understanding why her daughter was so easily able to achieve, you know, this greatness and all these things that she wanted for herself 
with the tools that she gave her. You know what I mean? Like that does kind of have to be a weird mind fuck. It's not like Lynn Spears was like some talented, amazing dancer. And it was like hard for her to deal with her daughter becoming famous. Sissy Houston was an incredible singer. An iconic, incredible singer. And it led to this lifelong, very strange relationship between these two where she was both her biggest fan and supporter and also extremely jealous and kind of passively wished for her daughter's downfall in a lot of ways, which is really sad. And because of it, I I believe Sissy was extremely emotionally abusive to her daughter. I think that when you see people talk about Sissy and their relationship, you know, you hear them mention that she was stern and that she was strict and, you know, that Whitney was like knew better than to fuck with her, you know, and that she never went to her for emotional support. You know, that wasn't who her mom was. And when you learn more about her mom and their relationship and how she treated her, it's like, oh, she was actually just abusive. It's actually much more simple. She was abusing her daughter. Also, as a side note, it's not to say that I just want to make make it clear that I'm not saying that Sissy Houston didn't amount to anything. Like, she was really fucking talented. She sang back up for Otis Redding. She, like, went on tour with fucking Elvis. She opened up for Elvis. She sang back up for Jimi Hendrix and Dusty Springfield. This woman is, like, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame iconic, you know? Um... And before we get even one minute deeper into this episode, we do have to discuss religion because there is no Whitney Houston episode without a little, a little religious talk. We need to talk about God real quick because to say that Whitney Houston was a religious person would be the biggest understatement of the century. Whitney was, I mean, from the moment she entered the world to the moment she left it always 100% driven by her love of God and the church through every phase of her life from like teenage girl singing in church to pop princess Whitney uh, to Whitney of Bobby and Whitney Incorporated to her sort of final days. Whitney was extremely, extremely religious And never in a way, the thing that I've always loved about Whitney is that she was never religious in a way that felt judgmental. I don't look at Whitney Houston and think like, God, what a judgmental, mean, you know, Bible dumping bitch. That's never, that's never been her thing. You know, never in the way of like Prince randomly deciding he hates everything secular after he spent like a decade objectifying women on stage and like fucking performing with his taint showing and then deciding everybody who does anything similar is disgusting. Whitney was raised in the church and had an understanding from a very early age that her talent was given to her by God and that every song she performed, no matter what it was, like I said earlier, she could literally sing happy birthday. She would sing it through her love of God and it would bring you to tears no matter what it was. There is nothing comparable. There is nothing, I'm sorry. I would venture to say that I, and I've been moved to tears by many a performance, trust me. (laughs) If these walls could talk about the shit I cry to on YouTube. um, 
But I can honestly say with my entire heart, I've never seen a person control an audience the way Whitney Houston could with her voice. To move people to hysterics. And I'm not talking about, you know, Michael Jackson, like, sending people into, like, the kind of hysterics where they end up on stretchers and gurneys and shit because he's dancing so hard. I'm talking about Whitney Houston just standing there on stage with a microphone, maybe walking to and from, maybe heading to the left and heading to the right. But for the most part, Whitney Houston was a performer who needed nothing but a band and a towel. (laughs) We all know that. Mama sweated a lot. Um, Also iconic. Uh, But yeah, I mean, there's just, there is no comparison to what Whitney Houston was able to do on a stage with just a microphone. So after the Newark riots, Whitney and her family moved to East Orange, New Jersey, and they were the first black family in their suburban neighborhood. And this is where Whitney actually started uh, performing as a true soloist at the New Hope Baptist Church in the Junior Gospel Choir. And as a teenager, Whitney would tour these nightclubs with her mom, and she started performing uh, background vocals for Shaka Khan. So she was very, like, immersed in the music world, of course, her entire life. It was all she had really known. Um, And Whitney was also extremely close to her family. And in that documentary, her brother literally says, you know, we were super close. We did everything together. I taught her how to drive. We played together. Everything that you do together is normal kids growing up. And then when I got into drugs, we did that together as well. And it had obviously been speculated for years and years and years, literally since we were introduced to Whitney. Um, you know, once the drugs, the drug speculation started, it was like, well, who who got Whitney Houston addicted to drugs? Because it couldn't possibly be her on her own. She's too sweet. She's too much of a good girl. What man came along and introduced Whitney Houston to drugs? And of course, you know, Bobby Brown was penned that was pinned on him for years. Everybody, you know, for years, decades, it was Bobby Brown introduced Whitney Houston to drugs. Bobby Brown killed Whitney Houston. That was always the common sort of misconception. People have this idea in their minds that Whitney was this like innocent angel, you know what I mean? Like had never experienced anything bad and then met Bobby and became like a wild renegade woman. When really, you know, Bobby was attracted to the fact that Whitney was, like, low-key, secretly, this girl that grew up in the fucking hood in Newark. Like, he liked that. You know what I mean? He was attracted to the fact that that already existed in her when he met her. In the documentary, Michael Houston, her brother, was basically trying to communicate without saying it because it was too painful for him to actually speak the words. He was trying to communicate that he got his sister addicted to drugs. He got his sister addicted to the drugs that eventually killed her. Of course, he feels like he killed her. He actually did an interview with Oprah after the documentary came out for the OWN Network where he said, I feel responsible for what I let go so far, he told Oprah in a Monday interview on OWN that primarily featured mother Sissy Houston, who has a new tell-all memoir out. In the book, Sissy says she didn't understand her children doing drugs then, and she doesn't understand it now. And Oprah said, so was the first time she tried freebasing cocaine or cocaine, crack, whatever, are you the one that introduced her to it? And he said, I think probably the first time we ever, she ever did it was probably, you know, 
But you've got to understand it was a different time. It was the 80s. It was acceptable. In the entertainment industry, it was just like available to us. It wasn't like a bad word like it is now. You know what I mean? We didn't know. We just didn't know. That's something I've got to live with for the rest of my life. And, you know, Whitney's, look, here's the thing. Whitney Houston comes from one of those classic Hollywood families that enters the industry with a closet full of skeletons and they spend the rest of their lives doing everything they can to try and cover it up. Even after things have gotten so far off the rails that they should just be honest. Honesty would be the the only solution at that point. They keep covering and they keep covering and they keep hiding and they keep pretending and lying and blaming and projecting. The Houstons have always been fucked. They were fucked before Whitney got famous. They were fucked while she was famous. And they're fucked after she died. I mean, what they put her daughter through after she died probably had her spinning in her fucking grave. She will haunt her sister, sister-in-law, I'm sorry, until the day she dies because of what they allowed to occur with Bobby Christina after Whitney was gone. It's disgusting. This family is just really, 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 uh, it's just hard to, uh, after living in this for like two weeks, it's just like hard to, to, you know, it's hard, whatever. Um, now we have to talk a little bit about Whitney's life partner, if you want to call her that, Robin. Whitney first met Robin, Robin Crawford in summer of 1980 when they were both camp counselors in East Orange And, you know, Robin went to high school with her uh, brothers. Robin is older than her. So for years, Robin didn't even know that she existed. She didn't know that Michael and uh, their other brother had a little sister. And once they met, they immediately became extremely close. And their origin story is as follows. They met at camp and became super, super close, best friends, spiritual connection, yaya sisterhood, the whole thing. The pants fit both girls, whatever. Uh, (laughs) So Whitney invited Robin over to her house for the first time and they kiss. Robin wrote in her book, we talked and talked and talked. And then all of a sudden we were face to face. The kiss was a long and slow. The kiss was long and slow like honey. As we eased out of it, my nerves shut up and my heart beat furiously. Something was happening between us. And according to Robin, Whitney would, you know, she was like super chill and normal and she would come over her house and hang out with Robin's family because her mom loved Whitney. And, you know, when she became really famous as a teenager, she would be like on the cover of Seventeen magazine and not even tell Robin or her mom. And they would like, you know, open up a magazine and be like, oh my God, you're on the cover of this magazine. Like, you know, you're a a fucking fashion model. Or they would be sitting in the living room and they would turn on TV and Whitney would be, you know, on a late night show as she's sitting on their couch, like eating pizza rolls. And she wouldn't even say anything about it. And Robin always said that Whitney had a really weird relationship with her fame because in my opinion, I don't think she ever felt any sort of ownership of it. I think you know, for somebody like her, once you get so wrapped up in the, like, sort of craziness of the industry and you're just sort of being pulled from every side 
and jumping on planes and not knowing what country you're in and having people make decisions for you and crafting your personality like you're a fucking sim to the world. It's like, I can completely understand why in your mind, it's not really a big deal that you were on 17 magazine because it didn't have anything really to do with you. You know, you're the face of this big thing that isn't you. Um, which we will talk a lot about in a minute. But because Robin was older than her, she was very protective of Whitney. You know, she would beat people up for her if they bullied her. And that sort of carried into their adult life in this really organic, very sweet way where, you know, Robin was Whitney's confidant. She was her right-hand woman. She was her protector. She gave her career advice. You know, later she started working with her as a tour director and they just had this amazing working relationship where she comfortably fit into all these different roles and she was great at all of them. You know, she was an amazing friend. She was an amazing lover and she was also like a fucking badass businesswoman that had really good instincts and was really creative. Um, Robin and Whitney were... I'm really like in the trenches together for years. If you, if you think about it, like Robin watched this like insecure, shy teenage girl working at a summer camp become a mega, mega famous person who was breaking Beatles records and being the first black female pop artist to, to first of all, just to ever exist. Um, you know, a mega, 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 super famous female black pop artist. It just didn't exist. There was no such thing before Whitney Houston, which again, we will get into in a minute. And uh, yeah, like I said, she became her sort of pseudo manager, her assistant, her bodyguard, her best friend, her girlfriend, her tour manager, um, her like bully if she needed it. Um. You know, and everybody in Whitney's camp who wasn't Bobby or her extremely homophobic, abusive mother loved her. And I know that we're like sort of skipping ahead to the Bobby thing. We'll get there. Trust me. There's a process. You guys know there's a method to all this madness at this point. We'll also talk more about Robin a little bit later, too. I really want to get into the early stages of Whitney's career, a time period that is now sort of, I think, very lost in translation in a sense. I think most people hear those old Whitney songs and just sort of count them as old, iconic, classic 80s ballads. And unless you're a Whitney fan or, you know, a black person who just grew up immersed in the world of Whitney Houston, because of course, you know, because of your family or whatever, many of these things will probably be lost on you. They're things that don't get talked about enough that I think are a very fucking big deal, especially now. In the early 80s, Whitney was working as this like teen fashion model or whatever. She was discovered by a photographer while she was performing with her mom at Carnegie Hall. He basically approached her and said, look, I would love to take some pictures for you, help you create a portfolio. And I really think that you could be like a fashion model. And there's literally no person, by the way, no, like nobody is more beautiful than Whitney Houston in the fucking 80s. A young Whitney Houston, are you kidding me? So it shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone that she was, of course, immediately successful as a model, which I'm sure her mom fucking hated. She was the first woman of color to appear on Seventeen magazine. 
She also appeared in Cosmo and Glamour and Young Miss. She was in some TV commercials. I think she was in like a Canada Dry commercial. Um, I want to say she was in another commercial for like a Japanese electronic that I don't know the name of. And I mean, actually, to be honest with you, Whitney Houston has some really surreal television commercials on YouTube, specifically the ones that did air in other countries like Japan. And I think the true test of whether or not you are like a, a, a truly world dominating pop star is if you have a bunch of really strange commercials for like sneakers and VCRs on YouTube. You know what I mean? Like just weird, weird commercials that don't have any actual context or just very strange of you like dubbed speaking Chinese. Just very, very weird. Um, and before we get into all the really super interesting stuff, which is coming, I promise, we do have to, of course, do some housekeeping. So by 1983, Whitney had several managers and she had recorded some songs that would be shopped around to labels. And she'd also turned down a bunch of recording contracts because Sissy Houston wanted her to complete school before she like went off to Hollywood to follow her dreams or whatever. Because everybody come to Hollywood got a dream. So Whitney was spotted by an A&R person um, from Arista Records who told Clive about her. Clive came to watch her sing. And of course, on the spot, asked her to sign a multi-million dollar recording contract and the rest is history. Now here's where things get really fascinating. Clive Davis had this very clear vision for what he wanted and that was to create a black female pop icon, something that had never been done before, a crossover black female pop icon. And he had tried with Aretha Franklin. He had tried with Dionne Warwick. And they were older. They were already more established. They weren't really looking to have somebody come in and tell them who they should or shouldn't be. These were very adult women at this time. Um, Whitney was young and, and beautiful and endlessly talented and moldable. And, I mean, most importantly, she was presentable. That's the thing. We'll get very deep into this in a second. She was the perfect thing for him to sort of hitch his wagon to because she was going to be guaranteed success. You don't listen to Whitney Houston sing and wonder if she can make it as a singer. You know what I mean? It's like you listen to Whitney Houston sing and say, I want to be the one that makes her a star because I know somebody will. Um, To the point that he like basically locked her into a contract because he was so afraid that somebody else would hear her sing. And the interesting thing about Whitney is that prior to her, there, like I said, there was no black female artist who took up space at the top of the pop charts. It literally had never existed. There was nobody to compare her to because she was the first of her kind. And the way she had to sort of go about doing what she did was to be heavily marketed to a white audience. And that's something that I think you can definitely say hasn't really changed all that much. Like, it isn't until a white audience accepts an artist or acknowledges the existence of an artist that they can be considered, in quotes, iconic. And Clive Davis knew that. 
He's like, it doesn't matter how many black people like an artist. If a bunch of white people don't like him too, it just doesn't matter to the music industry. It's as if they don't exist until a lot of white people say, oh, I like them too. And then all of a sudden they're a cultural icon. You know, there's somebody to be celebrated and they deserve awards and they deserve recognition, recognition and accolades and all those things. Um, Clive basically said, look, she's beautiful, isn't she? She's, she's black. Here's the thing. She's a black girl, but isn't she gorgeous? Look at her smile. <laughs> she lights up a room, doesn't she, boys? She's very sweet, too. Very good girl. Doesn't talk out of turn and wait until you hear her sing. She's gorgeous. Give us money. Um, Whitney broke race barriers in a way that is, like, just, it's mind-blowing. It's it, she, it's unprecedented and doesn't even get close to the amount of attention that I feel like it deserves because race plays such an integral part in her career and in my opinion it was one of the major reasons that she sort of felt this constant need to escape you know what I mean I think once she met Bobby Brown like he became nothing more than an escape for her and drugs were an escape for her you know of this like pressure cooker that had become her weird life she was presented to the world as this like beautiful statuesque princess with a beaming big white smile and an amazing personality this fucking personality for days and a voice that would make the hairs on the back of your fucking neck stand up and you know she was taught at a very young age to sort of push down and smother the other facets of her personality and you know she really she was so restricted from being able to just live to just live. You know what I mean? That's why her saying like her catchphrase throughout her entire life was, can I live? <laughs> That's why her documentary is called. Can I live? It was the thing that she would say to people all the time. One of the guys in the documentary said she would say it so often that they remixed it and they would like play a, can I live moment on stage during the last successful tour that she had because she had never been allowed to live. And we've seen the damaging effects that this has on a person. I mean, time and time again, you know what I mean? We've seen what that does to somebody long, long term and what it, what it turns into. And with that, being the young black girl from Newark, who's been invited to sit at a dinner table with a bunch of wealthy white executives, means that you need to look the part. There's always been so much emphasis on the way Whitney Houston looked, especially in the beginning. It was so much less about her like indescribable talent and voice and more about if she looked non-threatening and sweet enough for a white audience to accept her into their living rooms. And it's just so triggering and such a peek behind the curtain of like of the black experience, especially when you're a young person and you know, you know what it means to have to present yourself a certain way to a group of elder white people who may be judging you, but you aren't old enough as a kid or like a young teenager to really, really understand what that means. 
So you just like smile, you know, and give your like yes sirs and no ma'ams the best you can. It's very old school. It's very like I'm going to the bank with my grandmother, kind of old school, be a good boy shit. You know what I mean? And sissy is old school. So I can't imagine what their conversation sounded like before leaving the house to go meet Clive or stand in front of a room of executives or whatever and sing for people. It just makes me really sad to think about. I also think it's worth mentioning that, and I want, I want to really make sure that this point is like very clear. Who Whitney Houston was presenting herself to be wasn't entirely untrue of who she was. It was just that it was a small sort of facet of her personality. It wasn't entirely who she was. She wasn't just a good girl, you know? She wasn't just a soft-spoken, sweet girl that was good for white people, you know? I mean, she was many things. Um, And yeah, she was a church girl, and she was raised by fucking Sissy Houston, who expected absolutely nothing but the best for her daughter. She was a straight-A student. She was an overachiever. She was a good girl. But Whitney was also very charming, and she knew very. Whitney was aware of the fact that she was charming. You know what I mean? Because Whitney was really, really smart. So she knew when she needed to be charming, and she knew what charming looked like coming from her. And she was very good at turning it on when she needed to. You know what I mean? She knew when people wanted to see that soft-spoken, proper, good girl who would just sit there on a talk show with that big giant smile from ear to ear. And, you know, eventually they're going to ask you to stand up and put on a dress that's got big fucking frilly sleeves and bows. And they're going to ask you to put a big blonde crimped wig on your head. And at the end of the day, they want to be moved by how powerful your fucking voice is. And she knew that and she was really good at doing it. They also, of course really played heavily into the fact that she was Dionne Warwick's cousin and the daughter of Sissy Houston. That was the major, major marketing thing that Clive used. So if you saw Whitney on a talk show in the early to mid 80s, you know, this was almost always one of the first things they would bring up each time. And every time she talked about it, you know, she would answer as if she you know, didn't know it was coming or like she hadn't said it 48 times that day already. Oh yes. Yeah. I actually, I am. I'm the, I'm the cousin of Dionne Warwick. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. My mom is Sissy Houston. You know what I mean? Knowing that like it's written in giant red marker on, it's the first thing that this person is instructed to ask. Um, her first major TV appearance was on the Merv Griffin show. She performed home from the Wiz soundtrack, and you look, listen to me, I know that watching Whitney perform as an established artist in her peak is is incredible, mind-bending, of course. It's earth-shattering, mountain-moving, the whole thing. But for me, nothing compares to the vocal ability of a wide-eyed, happy-to-be-here, teenage Whitney Houston. I think some of her all-time best performances are the ones from the year prior to her sort of becoming a household name. And 
you know, it really is like almost an unnatural experience to watch Whitney Houston sing when she's at her best, because I don't think anyone has seen, I know that I said this already, but I'm going to say it a million times for the next month. I don't think that anybody up to that point had seen a person have the ability to emote emotion through their voice the way Whitney Houston could when she had total control over her voice before it had become ravaged and like worn from years of being abused when she was just like this young girl full of talent and to on top of it be so technically skilled and like powerful in her singing ability is just it's just not it's not human and the drummer in her band actually said in the documentary that he would sit behind her and watch her back muscles expand and pop open and tighten up and he would basically watch her body work as a fucking instrument like he would watch her body spasm and he would watch her muscles do all these really unnatural things because Whitney Houston sang from her fucking bone marrow you know what I mean like just completely unnaturally when Whitney started working on her debut album they had a really hard time finding songs for her because the way Clive was planning on marketing her had, as we talked about before, never really been done before. So to have this black girl cross over into a white market and dominate both the white and black pop charts, it's like, how do you do that in a world where there's no Beyonce's, you know, like, how do you do that? So Clive kept turning down songs, specifically ones that were in quotes, too black because he was playing to this like Joni Mitchell fan base for her. And this is one of the first, one of the first, many to come, major, major Britney and Whitney moments for me that sticks out as a giant red flag. You have these two, just hear me out, first of all, don't you dare. You have these two teenage girls who come from nothing. And at the end of the day, they both just want to perform because they like doing it, you know? Whitney likes to sing. Britney likes to dance and sing. You know, they just like performing because they're good at performing and they just like it. Then they both have these multi-million dollar bets placed on them by these record executives who believe they'll become the face of a new genre of music. So the goal is not to just become successful. It's not to sell records. It's not to make money. It's to invent a new category of music to change the world. And the compromise is that they have to take on a new identity and just sort of live in it for marketing purposes. So they were both told to lie about who they are and their origin story is sort of repurposed in this perfect little box, you know, for the Merv Griffin show slash Rosie O'Donnell show or whatever in the 90s. So we'll leave out, you know, the extent of how poor they were and how much they struggled and how difficult their lives were. And the fact that Whitney, you know, was turned on to heroin by her brothers in Newark and all of this dark shit. You know what I mean? We'll leave out the fact that addiction very clearly runs in your family and that you are now plagued by it as a teenager and it's obvious to everybody around you. And instead of trying to help you or fix it or protect you from it, we'll just ignore it and make you lie about it 
and pretend that it's not happening until it's something that we have to deal with. And even then, we won't really deal with it. It's just, um, it's a, it's a really fucking massive recipe for disaster. And on top of that, <laughs> when you think about it, the even worse thing is that they were so good at it. They were both so good at doing what these people told them to do. And not only did they do it really well, they did it in a way that that did end up working. It was world-changing, and it was world-dominating, and it did create a new genre of music, and it did open up the doors for, you know, thousands of other girls in the long run, you know, at the end of the day that have come and gone. Like, the thing worked, and that's almost the worst thing about it, is that, like, this terrible plan that these men came up with that will eventually just fucking kill you. It worked. You guys, let's go ahead and take a quick break so I can keep the lights on or whatever. Isn't that what they call advertisements? Pay the bills or whatever. It should come as no surprise that this week's episode is sponsored by my favorite game. That's right, I'm partnering again this week with Best Fiends. I feel comfortable enough at this point to say publicly that I consider myself to be an expert when it comes to mobile puzzle games if you use the term expert extremely loosely. I've been playing Best Fiends for a few months now, and that thing is happening where my brain is completely accustomed to the endorphins being released when I hear like those little noises indicating that I'm doing a good job. And truthfully, I think the reason I love this game is because it moves so fast that you look down and then all of a sudden an hour has passed and you're 100 levels deeper and you meant to send a text message, but you wanted to play just one round and you know the rest. Summer is also officially here, which means if you need me, I'll be laying outside in the single patch of grass that my apartment building owns and playing this game while I day drink. And for those of you keeping track, which I know you all are, get your notepads out, I'm on level 890. So tally them up, girls. 890, that feels like a milestone. And my absolute favorite thing about this game remains that it doesn't require an internet connection to play, so you can do it whenever you want. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. There's no version of this story that ends with anybody able to sustain a lifelong lie about their identity. It's just crazy. And the even more fucked up thing, if on top of it, is that when the world turns on you, which it inevitably would, of course, if you're lying about who you are, we're just going to throw you to the fucking wolves. You figure it out. <laughs> you figure out what to say in that press conference. I don't know what to tell you. You know what I mean? At that point, it's on you. You're 16, but you'll figure it out. So once they assembled their team of producers, which included Jermaine Jackson, I don't know why I think that's funny, but there was this time in Jermaine Jackson's life where his way of like separating himself from Michael was to just start producing other people's music. And he actually was really good at it. He produced like three or four songs on this album. It took two years to complete, and obviously, it was wildly successful, and of course, broke a bunch of records. She became the first black woman to have a number one album on Billboard at the end of the year. She was nominated for a bunch of Grammys, including, like, Best New Artist and uh, Album of the Year. 
and there was this controversy surrounding her um, Best New Artist nomination because she had been featured in other artists' songs from, like, doing collabs with people that her mom was friends with. So it up and opened up this conversation of, like, when is an artist technically a new artist? And that's something that is still kind of debated, and Whitney was the first person that uh, was plagued by this issue. Um the other example that I saw, I think, on, like, Wikipedia was Lauren Hill being nominated as Best New Artist for the Miseducation of Lauren Hill when, you know, versus, like, her time in the Fugees. So it's, like, when is an artist considered new kind of thing? And with the release of her album came this immediate strategy from Clive of we're going to release a black single and then a white single. <laughs> And then another white single, and then another white single, and then we'll throw the blacks another single because we don't want to lose that uh, that black radio play. And uh, you know, she was being asked in interviews why she's saying this kind of pop, poppy pop music. It didn't make sense to a lot of people. The general consensus was that, you know, why is she wasting her vocal ability on these these songs that feel very beneath her? And uh, my podcast idol, (laughs) Wesley Morris, who I mentioned on Instagram the other day, he was on a podcast um, that I'm obsessed with called Hit Parade, where they talked about the pop era of Whitney Houston's life. And he verbalized something that I think black people have just sort of known instinctively for decades but you don't really hear spoken into actual words very often that even though Whitney was singing these sort of stale pop ballads, like she put so much Whitney Houston stank on it that it was like, it was like she was still sort of communicating to the world, I'm still a black woman. I'm still me. Yes, I'm singing I Want to Dance with Somebody, but I'm I'm going to do it the way that I do it as a girl who sings from the fucking spirit of God. You know what I mean? Like, don't get it twisted. I'm still a black girl from Newark, New Jersey, who grew up in the church, and that made it okay for people almost. So it's like, even though a black audience wasn't uh, necessarily excited to hear her sing greatest love of all you know this amazingly talented woman singing these like these like just prom pop ballads she did it so fucking good that it made it okay you know it made it okay that Whitney Houston was singing songs that everybody knew was beneath her because she elevated everything she sang Whitney was also the first black female artist to be heavily rotated on MTV which was a major milestone and gave her, you know, international importance. She had officially crossed over into the MTV generation, which was a defining thing, especially in the fucking 80s. I mean, that was like, if you were an artist being played on MTV in the late 80s, early 90s, like that was, you know, like I said, it's it's a milestone. And through... Throughout the 80s, the black audience had grown so, like, increasingly tired of Whitney releasing these big mega pop records that purposely excluded them. 
you know, the theory at that time was that Whitney didn't want to be black. That's what a lot of people thought. Whitney Houston very clearly must hate being black. Why does she deny being black? Why is she denouncing her blackness? What is wrong with this girl? Why was she raised in the church but doesn't sing like it? Why is she doing this? It doesn't make any sense. And when you watch the music videos for songs like I Want to Dance with Somebody, I mean you can totally see how purposely whitewashed they were. I mean, it's like undeniable, you know, it's, it's almost heavy handed, you know, she was pumping out these songs that were, you know, not marketed to black people. They weren't being played on black radio and it made people say, why is this girl be bopping around on stage? Why is she bopping around and snapping on stage in a blonde crimped wig singing songs that sound like they were written for Debbie Gibson. And, you know, she's going on all these talk shows and saying that her mom is Sissy Houston. Her, her fucking cousin is Dion Warwick. So why is she singing this music? In 1989, Whitney was nominated for two Soul Train Awards and she was booed when her image appeared on the screen and the audience very loudly booed her. And It was just so telling of the circumstance that she had found herself in. It was almost like all of a sudden she looked around and thought, what the hell is going on? And what have I allowed myself to become? What have I allowed my public image to become? Who have I allowed these people to turn me into? You know, and this was a major deal publicly. This was a huge deal. Whitney Houston was fucking... Whitney Houston, the biggest artist in the world at this time, was booed on the Soul Train Awards, which which confirmed publicly that she was excluding the black audience in a way that had become, it almost felt aggressive. It was like an aggressive exclusion. And um, in the documentary, one of the guys from her band said that if you made a checklist of events that led to her actual downfall... Like moments that you would look back and say, this had an effect, this had a long-term effect, this had a long-term effect. He said that this moment would definitely be checkmarked on that list. It had a deeply, deeply profound um, uh, effect on her psyche of like, I am a black girl from fucking Newark, I can't say it enough, and I have turned my back against a community of people that... I don't even have any fucking beef with. They're, bl- they're they're my people. And I don't want to be singing this fucking music. None of this is up to me. <laughs> Clive Davis has gotten me into some shit. And, you know, their, uh, their, like, response to that, basically, after that happened, Whitney refused to allow them to pick her next single. And she was like, I'm releasing I'm Your Baby tonight. Whether you like it or not. <laughs> We are incorporating some new Jack swing into my, uh, into my (laughs) discography here. And, uh, yeah, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not standing on stage in a giant pink bow and, and, and fucking snapping my fingers for you. And the really sad thing about Whitney is that she came from such an already, you know, controlled environment that she was just so used to being told what was best for her and being told what to do and just sort of listening to people tell her what to do. And, you know, I've said it before, I'll say it again, probably 3,000 times. 
Sissy Houston is the true definition of a stage mom, and she's unapologetic about it. She wears it like a badge of honor. She makes no qualms about it. She makes no qualms about the fact that she was also very jealous of her daughter and very envious of her success, and she wanted people to know that Whitney would not be successful if it weren't for her and that she wouldn't know how to sing if it wasn't for her. Everything is because of her. And it's not like she was lying, but she was also very angry about the fact that people didn't seem to know it. And, you know, of course, at the same time, it's like Whitney Houston is becoming this mega star. She's wealthy now. Her family is becoming more dependent on her, a tale as old as time. So you can see as early as like the mid to late 80s and then early 90s, how deeply the pressure is starting to affect her. You know, you pair that with the fact that her parents are managing her career. Her brothers are now working for her. So her entire family is on the payroll. Her brothers are also, by the way, drug addicts. She's a drug addict. So they're all just fucking using drugs together like crazy. And there's one person protecting her from all of it. And that person is somebody who the people closest from her want to wedge her away from. It is so dark and so sad that the one person protecting her and keeping her afloat is the only person they don't want around. Oh, God. Um, Speaking of, let's talk about Whitney's relationship with her dad for a second. It's something that people have... I think always been pretty darked out by like, again, I also grew up just hearing adults talk about how fucked up Whitney's parents were and how sort of Svengali they seemed even back in the day. Um, Whitney was extremely close to her father and, you know, publicly he played the part of this sort of doting protective dad. But on the other hand, he was this really shady money hungry businessman who put money before everything in his life including his daughter cough cough bloated Matthew Knowles so he was both somebody protecting Whitney but also someone she needed protection from you know what I mean it's just so sad and it's it's so like I guess just apparent how vulnerable you become you know when you get when you find yourself in this situation where now Like, you can't trust anybody. You know what I mean? You can't trust your mom. You can't trust your dad. You can't trust your brothers. You can't trust anybody in your family, your cousins, your uncles, whatever. You can't trust your friends. You can't trust your the person you're in a relationship with. You can't trust the people on tour with you. Nobody is trustworthy. And the one person that you do trust is uh, is the most controversial person in your life. Now, we're going to end this week by delving a little deeper into the strange politics of her relationships with Robin and Bobby. The more famous Whitney Houston became, the more apparent it was to the press and to the general public that people didn't really know a whole lot about Whitney Houston, about her personal life. You didn't really know anything about her at this time. Here you have this like beautiful, gorgeous, amazingly talented you know, young girl riding this unprecedented wave of fame and doing things that black female artists have literally fantasized about, 
I mean, since the beginning of the music industry. And you're doing all of them and then some. But there's no man. Where is her famous black boyfriend? Why isn't she dating? Why are her parents and Robin the only people that she goes to red carpet events with? Why does she always walk the red carpet with her family? And who is this Robin person that she always thanks on stage? It started to weird people out. You know what I mean? It was very perplexing for people in the 80s for her to have this close relationship with somebody who presented as gay. So rumors of Whitney's sexuality started in like the, I'd say like the late 80s, early 90s. I think like 89 is when it really started to pick up, maybe like 90 or 91. It became big business, big tabloid business to speculate if Whitney Houston was a closeted lesbian. And you don't hear this really get mentioned very often, but Whitney was a part of that sort of Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, George Clooney era of like the National Enquirer. When they would very publicly ask questions about a celebrity's sexuality or make public things that people have been talking about in the industry before, you know, it had become tabloid rumor. It was always something that people talked about behind closed doors, Whitney Houston's sexuality, you know, exactly like Brad Pitt. And like I said, all of those previously mentioned people, um, it's just something that during that time specifically, it was like, and then it became the thing of, you know, especially for men, like, you know, you're famous when like the gay rumors start. Remember that was like how all of those guys would respond to that. When there's gay rumors, you know that that's when you've made it. <laughs> like during that Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt era of, uh, of like the tabloids, it was like, you know, it's a rite of passage. It's a rite of passage for your sexuality to be questioned. It's nothing more than that. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the fact that Brad Pitt was a pool boy to a gay author and lived on his couch for years before he became a star. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's a rite of passage. It just means you're attractive. Um, and, you know, from what I've wet... <laughs> oh, there we go. Liz Bentley, my speech impediment. Um, and from what I've read... Whitney was very much a part of, you know, the DL lesbian Hollywood scene at the time, understandably. I don't remember who it was. I want to say maybe it was Ellen. It couldn't have been Ellen. Maybe it was Rosie or somebody. I remember listening to one of the more iconic Hollywood lesbians, Jodie Foster. It was somebody who talked about the fact that, like, Whitney was somebody who would go to, like, the parties, you know? The Melissa Etheridge, Katie Lang you know, Rosie O'Donnell, Jodie Foster parties, like just the gals getting together. You know, Whitney was, Whitney was a part of that crowd. And there's an interview shown in the documentary where Katie Couric, um, you know, she like, I guess you could say she confronts Whitney about her sexuality and her relationship to Robin. And this was during a time when people could demand answers about whether or not you were gay in an interview, really just to kind of watch you squirm. Because this is peak AIDS epidemic, like Keith Haring. This is the late 80s, early 90s. You know, so she explains to Katie that she's had talks with Robin about, you know, the way she looks. And she's had to tell her, you know, Robin, you play basketball and they think you're a man. You know, you have broad shoulders and you have short hair. You know, I've warned her about what people will think about how she looks. And she 
publicly defends her by saying, you know, she's a damn good basketball player and I think she could kick any guy's ass and I love that about her, you know? And Katie is looking at her like she's this evil, deceitful little bitch with something to hide and it's just so... It's just so, you know what I mean? And that's always been one of the the most enjoyable things about Whitney Houston and something that I I would consider to be a major difference between, uh, you know, a teen pop queen, Whitney Houston, and a teen pop princess, Britney Spears, that when Whitney, you know, did interviews and stuff, Whitney Whitney took shit from absolutely nobody. And she had no problem putting you in your fucking place. On top of it, she was highly intelligent and could talk an interviewer in circles. You know what I mean? So those moments where an interviewer would try and get like a gotcha moment on TV would always end with that person looking really stupid and demeaned while Whitney Houston like rests her head on her fingers and gives you a squinty look with a smile and like a wink. You know, literally letting you know, bitch, I just made you look like the fool. Don't ever try it again. She was just such a fucking badass in that sense. And her defending her lesbian life partner in an interview with Katie Couric in the early 90s and not cowarding away from the question is like the true definition of just punk rock to me. It's just like so, it's so cool. Um... And Whitney's publicist, Keith Rogers, also said in the documentary that 99.9% of the people who run the music industry are extremely homophobic, which is why, you know, we still see so many artists being forced to hide their sexuality or pretend that it just doesn't exist at all. Um, I would say the only thing that's really changed when it comes to this is the public's response which we talk about all the time, but it's just like, it's just really sad. And, you know, her mother was unsurprisingly extremely against her relationship with Robin. Clive also really hated Robin because it was bad publicity. And it's like, you know, let's just analyze this for a fucking moment. You have Clive Davis, who... As Whitney Houston, you're watching this man vacation with fucking David Geffen and parade young fucking guys around like they're pets on yachts. And he's also telling you that you can't be yourself or be friends with someone that you've known since you were 17 because it's bad business and it interferes with his cash flow. So you have this toxic dynamic of the people in charge of your life trying to separate you from a woman who is really a pillar of stability. You know, Robin was always the thing that kept her tethered to safety and reality. Robin was the thing that protected her from the deep end, you know? She was literally like a life vest for her. And Whitney maintained a drug problem for basically her whole life, and was surrounded by it constantly, but Robin was the thing that kept her from really losing herself to it. And one of Whitney's backup dancers mentioned, you know, the irony that their focus was on Robin and not the fact that Whitney was a functioning drug addict, which also emphasizes this thing of Whitney's appearance always being the most important thing. The way that the world viewed Whitney Houston was 
most important above all things. So it's okay. Like you can be depressed. You can be sad. You can be a drug addict. Go, go for it. Nobody cares, but look good, (laughs) look good doing it and be a good girl. It should also be noted that Sissy Houston was never apologetic about the fact that she didn't want her daughter being gay. She forbid it. She would literally say it in interviews even after Whitney died. She forbid her from being gay and she gave zero fucks about anyone being upset about that. Even though, you know, it's like the irony that the gay community has played a major role in helping sustain your lifestyle the lifestyle that you've lived for decades and decades. I own 1% of every fucking tattered wig Sissy Houston has placed on her skull. Um, also, everyone in her camp, everyone in her team, her backup dancers, her wardrobe people, her makeup artists, her backup singers, hair, all everybody, they all knew Whitney and Robin were in love. And they all knew how protective Robin was of Whitney. And they also knew how detrimental Robin was to keeping her alive. Really. They all knew that. So, you know, it just, for me, just emphasizes how cold Sissy Houston was to her daughter. How fucking cold she was to her kid. You know what I mean? Not just even to her daughter, but just in general. Just a cold fucking woman. Um... You know, and there's also, of course, there was talk of Whitney being asexual. That was another thing that people wondered. Does she just not like anyone? Does she not like men or women? Is she asexual? And we have to factor in the fact that, factor in the fact that, uh, and trigger warning, this is super, super, super dark, but in their documentary for the first time, Whitney's brother, Michael, does confirm that their aunt and... Uh, so it would be, um, Diane Warwick's sister sexually abused them as kids. She sexually abused Michael. She sexually abused their other brother, whose name I just can't think of for some reason right now. And she sexually abused Whitney. And it obviously played a major part in Whitney's identity of who she was as a person. You know, so she's carrying around. I mean, imagine what that would fucking feel like. She was molested by a woman as a little girl. And then she grows up to kind of be sexually attracted to women. And she falls in love with a woman who treats her amazingly and cares about her very deeply. And then there's the added layer of the fact that she's religious. And she grew up in the church and her family forbids her lifestyle in quotes they just pretend that they don't know what's happening it's very convoluted and very messy and there's this moment in the documentary where they show all these clips of her sort of being flirted with on red carpets and being flirted with in interviews with by men and you know a lot of them say that they believe Whitney was bisexual but that she was very sort of disconnected to her own sexuality. It wasn't, you know, she didn't like being sexy. She didn't have any ownership of herself being sexy. She didn't like being sort of classically sexy. You know, it it made her uncomfortable. Um, And she was weirdly private about her sexuality in a way 
obviously that a lot changed when she, she met Bobby and, you know, she just became a different person. But in those sort of naive years of her life, those younger years in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, um, she she just carried around the guilt of knowing that she was molested by a woman in her family and that her family knew and they didn't fucking do anything about it. And her mom denied it even still after her brother came forward and said, I was molested. She molested me. I know she molested everybody else in our family, the kids. Her her mother still sort of denounces it. Oh, it's this is it's just too much. Um we're going to end this week with Whitney Houston meeting a man named Bobby Brown. <laughs> Whitney, uh, Whitney, it's time to stop recording. Whitney met Bobby the night of the Soul Train Awards. Bobby said in a documentary in 2009 that Whitney sat behind him and hit him in the back of the head a couple times. And when he turned around, she said, oh, I'm sorry, did I get you? And according to Bobby, <laughs> she knew and everybody in the room knew that he was the flyest person in the room. And that's why she wanted him. Ding, ding, ding. By the way, uh, we're going to end this on a Britney parallel. Can you believe? For Whitney Houston, obviously, I think, or maybe this isn't obvious. This is just sort of my opinion on it. I think Bobby Brown represented all the things her mom kept her away from her entire life. You know, Bobby was a bad boy. He was from the streets. He was the bad boy in quotes of R&B. And I think similarly to Brittany and Kevin, I think Whitney Houston loved him because he allowed her to be the the sort of like wig off version of herself, if you will. The version of herself that walks into a hotel room and like snatches her wig off and throws it across the room and just itches her natural hair really hard because she's been sweating on stage. Bobby loved that version of her, you know? the version of herself that could be really vulnerable and not pretty or perfect um, and not be a princess in a ball gown on stage singing ballads. Like he loved the messy Newark, New Jersey side of Whitney Houston. I think there was an emotional dependency there because Bobby came to represent the, in quotes, real life version of Whitney Houston. So if your entire identity is wrapped up in marketing, in boardrooms, in strategy, in money, you know, for these leeches around you, and you've already lost the ability to form authentic relationships because, you know, you're a superstar, you're the most famous person in the world, of course, you're going to become sickly addicted to the love of a person that you think knows you and loves you for who you are when millions of people don't. When millions and millions and millions of people are obsessed with you for all the wrong reasons and you have this guy who is just like in love with you and he likes the, the version of you that you've been told is bad, you know, the, the in quotes ugly version of you, he likes it. He wants that more than the, the Whitney Houston that you see in the Merv Griffin show, you know, and I think Bobby genuinely really did love Whitney because of all those things. I think Bobby also felt a sense of pride in the sense that he, you know, almost sort of like an ownership of her in that way. She's mine. Like, I get a version of her that you don't get. 
I get the real Whitney Houston. I know how the sausage is made. I know what's going on in her head. I know this person. You don't know her. I know her. She chose me. Like, Whitney, or, you know, Bobby is four feet tall and very territorial and is Napoleon complex the house down. So I think that that's a really, that was a really big turn on for him. I got Whitney Houston and not only did I get her, she's obsessed with me and I know her like nobody else in the entire world, you know? Well, of course, except for her longtime girlfriend, Robin. We're going to end on that note. We are an hour and 17 minutes into this episode. Fuck. That felt so, I feel like I literally just gave birth. I feel like I just gave birth. It felt so good to not think about anything terrible fucking going on in the world right now and just talk wax poetic about Whitney Houston for as long as I want. You guys, I love you. I love you so much. I have got to turn the air on in this fucking apartment. I am going, first of all, I've lost 40 pounds. I'm now looking down, I have abs. I'm all loose skin and abs. I love you so much. I will see you next week. This is just the beginning of Whitney and Bobby and Robin. Here's what I'm thinking. Obviously, this is going to be a million parts. And I, I really I really do feel comfortable just sort of devoting the next few weeks to Whitney Houston. Like, I've wanted to do this for a long time. And I just want to lean in. And in between, I'm thinking uh, in between the episodes when I don't feel like doing 40 pages of notes a week. I'd like to kind of sprinkle in some Whitney Houston content, like album reviews specific to Whitney Houston, and um, maybe we'll do a movie. Maybe we'll watch Waiting to Exhale. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, maybe we'll, I'm just going to devote as much time as I feel like I need to Whitney Houston, because she's my safe space right now, and I hope that you're down with that, because <laughs> if you're not, then you're fucked. <laughs> I love you guys. I want to get off the microphone now, but I care about you deeply, and I just want to also say again that I am just so appreciative appreciative of you and i just i i want to stop talking all right bye guys i'll see you next week thank you for listening to dunzo this podcast is a part of the solid listen network please take a moment to rate review and subscribe if you haven't already also be sure to check out our patreon at patreon.com slash solid listen for exclusive content you can follow me on Twitter at Troy McGee, and you can follow the podcast on all forms of social media at DunzoPod. That's D-U-N-Z-O. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew.